Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dongfang Hour China Space News Roundup. This for the week of the 26th of July to the 1st of August, 2021. I'm Blaine Curcio, joined as always by my co-host Jean Deville. And this week, I come to you from a bachelor party in Nashville, Tennessee, the Music City. So bear with us if it sounds a bit like a zoo in the background at certain times during this episode. This week, we have three updates to bring you, or I guess three and, and a few. So we have some updates on a 5G via satellite test having been done between Beijing and Jinan. We have a plethora of updates from China's race of commercial launch companies. But first, some news from iSpace on their Hyperbola 3A rocket. And a very short reminder, if you have not yet signed up for the newsletter, we have about seven or eight additional pieces of news this week that are only available in the Dongfang Hour newsletter. That being said, welcome to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, we are honored to welcome you aboard the Dongfang Hour. Please make sure your seatbelt is securely fastened. Thank you. John, what's going on with iSpace? Yeah, very. Um, unusual rocket configuration. Let's talk about the Hyperbola 3A. So a couple of weeks ago, in June 2021, we had reported that iSpace had completed the definition phase of their medium lift rocket, the Hyperbola 3, and this was a good opportunity for them to reveal the extent of the family of the Hyperbola 3 and also some technical characteristics. And probably among the different versions that were presented, there was one that was really eye-catching, and that was the Hyperbola 3A because it had this non symmetrical structure with only one side booster. And this week, iSpace provided some insight on their decision for making uh, such an unusual rocket. And this is definitely some excellent material for the Dongfang Hour weekly space news update. So firstly, iSpace mentions that while indeed this Hyperbola 3A unsymmetrical design looks um, quite unusual, it is not the first such design in history. And probably the most famous example that uh, they bring up is the American Space Shuttle, where we had the orbital vehicle that was hanging to one side. And we had similarly the Soviet Union's Buran spaceplate that was hanging to the one side of the Energia rocket to a similar effect. And another example, which uh, still exists today of an asymmetrical rocket is the famous Atlas V, because the Atlas V exists in multiple configurations. It can accept zero, one, two, three, or five uh, side boosters. And actually every single one of those versions, except the version with no side boosters, is uh, is not symmetrical. And this is because this is due to the positions of the side boosters. And this is actually really evident when you look at the rocket from above. And I'll put a picture up here. And probably the one that looks the most unusual is the one with only one side booster. So if we show, for example, the uh, one of the versions that's called the 411 version of the Atlas V, you have something that looks very similar to the um, Hyperbola 3A. And the major disadvantage that iSpace brings up with such a configuration is basically since you have the booster that is offset from the center of gravity of the rocket, this creates an undesirable torque that you have to counter by creating a torque in the opposite direction. And this can be done 
in various manners. Um, iSpace brings up two. Probably the most um, common way to do this is to do some gimbaling with your rocket engine. So basically orienting your, your rocket engine nozzles and to create a torque in an opposite direction to counter the initial undesirable torque. And so that's one way of doing things. And that's probably how it's done on the Atlas V. And there's another way of doing this that iSpace brought up, which is that since the iSpace first stage has really multiple engines, it has an engine cluster that looks very similar to what you have on a Falcon 9. Well, since you have multiple engines, you can apply a variable amount of thrust to these different engines. And this can create also a torque that can counter the initial um, torque. So that's another way of doing things. And we still have to see which one iSpace will choose uh, to use. And potentially, maybe they could use um, a combination of both. So that's one First difficulty and probably the major one. Another tricky one uh, that iSpace mentions is that um, by losing the symmetry, it just of the rocket, it just makes flight dynamics uh, equations much more complex to solve and to simulate. And this is this is actually quite intuitive for anyone who's done some physics. Symmetry is really a great source of simplifications of equations. So obviously, if we don't have an axisymmetric rocket, then we can really imagine um, and anticipate that the equations do get a little bit more complex. So not something that's impossible to do. We've seen that the US and the Soviet Union managed to do, do this quite okay with their various projects, but it's definitely just an extra more finicky thing um, to, to get done for sure. Now, the last question that I would want to bring up with the Hyperbola 3A rocket in which iSpace answers is, why do this at all? You know, why make your life more complicated with one side booster when you can actually have two? And um, the answer of iSpace is just that they needed um, probably a more versatile Hyperbola 3 rocket because, you know, the Hyperbola 3 today with no side boosters, if, if it's used as an expendable rocket, has a payload capacity of 13.7 tons into low Earth orbit. And if we look at the version with two side boosters, so the Hyperbola 3B, then we're talking about 32.2 tons into low Earth orbit. And so that's a huge gap. And in order to have a version that's in between, well, that is naturally the Hyperbola 3A with only one side booster with um, 26.1 tons into LEO. And if we use, if we talk about the Hyperbola 3 rockets as a reusable rocket, then in this case, we get a payload to LEO of 8.6, 12.9, and 14.1 tons into LEO respectively. So definitely this makes the rocket family more versatile in terms of payload capacities that iSpace can offer to customers and with minimal time and development costs. Because basically uh, what iSpace is doing, just taking this core Hyperbola 3 rocket and adding um, side boosters as you would with the Lego to build the Hyperbola 3A and the Hyperbola 3B. So um, that is really the main reason why they are doing this. And I think that if iSpace pursues really this solution in the end, I, I we can't say it's definitive right now because um, iSpace just passed the definition phase of the Hyperbola 3. So it's really extremely early phase and the Hyperbola 2 actually hasn't even really flown yet. So um, things can, you know, there's still room for, for some change. But if they really go for this configuration, I think that this shows that um, Chinese launch companies are really able to have their own technical choices and to innovate. And they don't just uh, simply copy the technical solutions of the Falcon 9, of the Falcon Heavy or, or SpaceX or just any American rocket company, which is something I think that they have been frequently accused of. I've never actually heard that. So no, I'm just joking. I, I hear that every week that the, uh, the Chinese companies are only copying SpaceX. So yeah, no, that's definitely a good point. Um, and just a couple of small points to add on iSpace, then we'll get into the, the next piece of news. Um, so I think that the the lengths that iSpace is seemingly willing to go to for improved versatility of the Hyperbola 3 is indicative really of, of 
two things. Uh, so the first one is that we still don't really know how the broader space economy is going to develop at a much lower launch cost. And I suppose that things like, um, you know, versatility of launch services are going to be a factor, but we don't really know. And so it's interesting um, that this is a this is a direction they're going. And the second point, I guess, is um, it's indicative of the, the just the number of launch companies in China and the extent to which uh, certain launch companies they need to do things to differentiate themselves because otherwise you just have too many companies doing more or less the same thing in an industry that a lot of people say is going to become commoditized very quickly, especially when we get to you know, very large rockets. So uh, moving forward, I, I certainly don't know how well the Hyperbola 3 will work out commercially or technologically, uh, but to iSpace's credit, they're definitely doing something different and uh, something that might give them an edge in what is a very crowded Chinese commercial launch market. Uh, anything else, John, from your side on iSpace, or shall we move into the 5G Leo broadband test while there is a, uh, a fight breaking out in the background over here? <laughs> I'm good. Let's hear about 5G. There may be a bit of a lag as well. So that's uh, this Tennessee internet is known to be quite good. So this week, uh, China announced its first 5G network, uh, Leo Broadband Satellite Integration Test, performed between the cities of Jinan in Shandong Province and Beijing. So the test apparently created a link between private networks in the two cities involving a simulation of a dangerous goods factory in Jinan, with the staff in Beijing handling the accident simulation remotely via Leo Satellite. And so according to Chen Tianhang, a satellite internet systems engineer involved with the test, the latency was between 20 and 30 milliseconds, which allowed for very um, you know, low latency handling of the situation, as it were. Uh, and so Peng Mugan, the uh, deputy director of the state key laboratory of network technology at the Beijing University of Posts and Telecommunications, also noted that satellite-enabled 5G will provide backup for situations such as forest fires, emergency response, etc. And this is something that, as we mentioned last week with the, the Hunan flooding, um, there seems to be a real impetus by the Chinese government and by the powers that be to try to utilize space infrastructure for things like disaster response. So this is an interesting example of that. The article does not explicitly mention it, but the test appears very likely to have been done using the Galaxy One or the Yinhe Yihao satellite uh, launched by Galaxy Space in early 2020. So the aforementioned Mr. Ch uh, Chen Tianhong, uh, he noted during the interview uh, saying that we have built a satellite super factory in Nantong and that after its completion, it will reach an annual capacity of several hundred satellites. Now, again, the article does not mention Galaxy Space by name, but given that Galaxy Space is given a very uh, is building a very specifically named uh, satellite super factory, so they use the phrase uh, in Nantong, we can only assume that the uh, this is a Galaxy One enabled test. And um, I guess just a small point, and, and I, Jana, I welcome any any thoughts on your side as well. But the the satellite super factory, I've, I've started to kind of realize how. I don't know what makes it a super factory. Why don't we just call it a satellite factory? But uh, Galaxy Space goes with the name super factory, and so we have to keep doing it. But uh, dig digressing, um, it seems the test was carried out as a collaborative effort between the Beijing University of Post and Telecommunications and Galaxy Space, possibly with some other partners. Um, and I guess just last couple of points on my side. Um, I think that the lack of mention by Galaxy Space by name is in and of itself somewhat interesting. I mean, it's very, very it's pretty clear that they were using Galaxy One. Um, so to not name Galaxy Space, it, it's it's a little bit unusual. Total speculation here, but I suspect um, it may have something to do with the fact that individual companies are to some extent kind of laying low in the context of these types of tests with government-type participants. Um, so, you know, Beijing University of Post and Telecoms is a very prestigious and powerful university in Beijing. And I don't know how 
I don't know to what extent Galaxy Space wanted to be public with uh, this collaboration. Um, I guess other noteworthy points about the press release include uh, the obligatory mention to China's addition of satellite internet to its new infrastructures list in 2020, and also the fact that SpaceX is launching Starlink very quickly, that China needs to respond with a similarly fast rollout of its LEO broadband network. Uh, the article also highlights the need for the mass manufacturing of LEO satellites in China, pointing out that the visibility of each satellite is very limited due to their proximity to the Earth, and therefore you need you know, several hundred to you know, thousands of satellites for global coverage. Uh, so the final note from my side, we have, and I'll put a link in the podcast uh, notes, um, we have a quite lengthy and comprehensive interview with Wang Peng from Galaxy Space from February of this year. And during the interview, Wang Peng notes that Galaxy Space is capable of producing about 30 payloads per year and about 30 satellites per year in their facilities in Xi'an and Shanghai, respectively. Wang also notes that the company hopes to produce satellites at a rate of 100 per year by the end of 2021, although it's not entirely clear if he's referring to their facility in Shanghai or a sort of first phase of the facility in Nantong of the super factory that I mentioned just a moment ago. And they also aim for a capacity of 500 satellites per year at some point in the undefined future. Bottom line, it seems like Galaxy Space is positioning itself as a space technology company with activities in different areas related to satellite internet, namely satellite applications, possibly related equipment, uh, and that they are ramping up production capabilities for broadband satellites and payloads while conducting tests for different applications, such as this 5G test. Uh, John, I'm going to go on mute because it sounds like there's a basketball game going on in the background, and I will <laughs> turn it over to you for any further thoughts on Galaxy Space. Sure thing. So I, I think to your question on the super factor, I, I could I could see two reasons for this name. The first one would be just the output, the production cap capacity of the factory, which is able to produce hundreds of um, satellites, I think, per year. And I think another possibility is that um, the you know the the factory is using smart manufacturing technologies. Um, and this is something similar maybe to the, um, Xingyun satellite production in Wuhan, where they, they also claim that they have a very smart manufacturing, um, um, you know, factory. And so this could be what makes the super factory a super factory. Um, but to go back to this 5G, um, test in Jinan, I think that this test is really very interesting because I think we have a prime example of where 5G technology shines. Many people have a tendency to think that 5G is just, uh, you know, 4G on steroids with, um, higher bandwidth, but it's actually much more than that. And I think that the key thing with 5G is the significant drop of latency. You know, the test here talks about 20 to 30 milliseconds of latency, and that is significantly lower than the latency of the human reaction, which I believe is around um, 200 milliseconds. So I think that the lower than human latency really enables a lot of industrial applications that can be managed remotely. And so we can think of things like, you know, remote driving or maybe um, remote industrial operations. And I think this dangerous products leakage test in Jinan, but operated from Beijing is really a perfect illustration of what is possible with 5G, but not possible with 4G. And now um, discussing a little bit the satellite component in 5G here, I think using a satellite um, for the deployment of the 5G network. And so here it's the Galaxy One 5G satellite from Galaxy Space, as mentioned by Blaine, very likely. 
Um, this means that remote areas could potentially be covered more easily by 5G technology thanks to satellites. And this is really good news for remote um, industrial sites. And so let me just explain that a little bit. I think that the, the issue here is with 5G is basically 5G uses millimeter waves. And so the consequence of that is, well, Millimeter waves, it's much higher frequency than 4G electromagnetic waves. And this, one of the consequences is that uh, basically the range of the 5G base stations on the ground are much smaller than 4G, which means that you have a significantly higher deployment effort to do on the ground if you want a similar coverage of 5G as uh, we had for 4G. And this uh, really explains partly the massive number of ground stations involved in 5G deployment efforts in, in China, I believe, for example, typically in Guangzhou, the municipality announced uh, what something like 39,000 5G base stations to be deployed in the next um, in the next year or so. And that is in Guangzhou alone. So definitely a lot of stations. And I think this is where 5G satellites have a role to play because we can imagine that the strong concentration of base stations to enable coverage, this will not be cost efficient and will not be interesting to do in remote areas where you don't have that many people and not that many industries. And so the idea of having a 5G satellite that can provide uh, maybe backhauling services to some of the um, 5G base stations that we, we could have there could uh, bring the cost of covering those remote areas down significantly and could solve this problem. And I think that um, this is something that has been explored uh, multiple times over the past months by China. So there's this Galaxy 1 uh, test that we're mentioning here. But also this week, we saw that there was another 5G satellite test that took place um, between the CAICT. So that is the Chinese Academy of Information and Communication Technology, as well as China SATCOM. Uh, and this took place with their ChinaSat 16 broadband HTS satellite. And so we're not going to cover that in this episode. But if you want more information on that, please um, check out our newsletter. That's all I have on 5G. Blaine, do you have anything else to add on 5G? Or shall we move to um, some more discussions on launch? All good from my side. We got a lot of launch updates to get into. Absolutely. And I'll start with the first one, which concerns China's um, state-owned launch industry. And so an article published by China's official media, China Aerospace News, announced on July the 28th that CASC's 6th Academy, AALPT, so the Aerospace Academy of Liquid Propulsion Technology, had completed the first engineering prototype of the YF-90 engine. So a little background on the YF-90. The YF-90 engine is a closed-cycle, fuel-rich Hydrolox engine, which produces 220 tons of thrust. And the article mentions that AALPT plans to perform the first semi-system tests by the end of this year, followed by full system tests. So what that probably refers to is um, semi-system tests, I think, is basically testing everything that comes before the combustion chamber. So that's the liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen pumps. That's also uh, potentially the pre-burner. And full system tests, I think that refers to really an end-to-end -end test, which includes igniting the combustion chamber and generating the full amount of thrust that the rocket engine is capable of. And so this piece of news is interesting. It shows that ALPT is making good progress with the YF-90. And this comes in addition to another piece of news that we mentioned back in January 2021, where we also well, got the information that the Academy had completed a number of key tests linked to the liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen, turbo pumps, and the associated cryogenic systems. Now, the most interesting part about this piece of news is actually the fact that this engine is mentioned at all in the context 
of the Long March 9. So let me dig into that a little bit. Up to very recently was believed that this engine, the YF90, would be powering the second stage of the Long March 9. And this is something that we had seen on the various PPTs, the various diagrams that were released by China on their Long March 9. But in the most recent iteration of the Long March 9 that was presented by Long Lehao in a speech in June uh, 2021 at Hong Kong University, and I have a feeling that I'm mentioning this speech basically in every episode now, we see that there is a new configuration of Long March 9 proposed with similar payload capacities, but with no side boosters, with new materials, with common bulkhead tanks, and perhaps more interestingly, with new engines. And so based on Long Le Hao's diagram presented last month, it would seem that it would be 120 tons thrust Hydrolox engines that would be used in the second stage and not the YF-90. So this really bears the question of what will the YF-90 that the AALPT is developing right now, what purpose will it serve really? And really the big question is also who is right about the Long March 9? Is it Long Le Hao or is it this publication of China Aerospace News? And what's funny is both of these sources are actually official sources. And I was also reading the other day an article that was published by the Chinese media, and this article seems to suggest that actually both of them are correct. And what will happen very likely is since China plans some lunar missions in the very early 2030s, we could see this, you know, the older version of the Long March 9 enter service uh, around those dates and would be using the YF-90 engines and those, um, you know, the configuration of the Long March 9 that we've known already for uh, multiple years. And so that would be, you know, the Long March 9 V1. And potentially after 2035, you could see this new version of the Long March 9 that was presented by Long Le Hao last month at Hong Kong University with new materials, new tanks, new engines, and potentially it could be uh, available in a reusable version. And um, so that will be available also, but at a later stage. So really, I think this week, a lot of things going on with um, um, state-owned um, launch enterprises and also a very good dose of mystery. So do stay tuned to the Dongfang Hour if you want to know more about these rockets. And we will, of course, discuss them as soon as we know more. So Blaine, um, anything on these um, state-owned launches, launch vehicles, or want to tell us a little bit what's going on with the private sector? Indeed. Well, it's been another week, which means we have about six more updates from both the commercial and uh, state-owned launch sector. So we can move into the commercial companies. So we saw this week uh, Space Pioneer, so aka Tianbing Aerospace. Uh, they announced a, quote, hundreds of millions of RMB pre-B funding round. So about some tens of millions of U.S. dollars. Um, the funding round marks the sixth round of funding completed by Tianbing in the past two years, with the company claiming to have raised more than 1 billion RMB during those six funding rounds. And so as we've noted before, Tianbing is one of several uh, second-generation launch companies that was founded by a former leader of a first-generation launch company. So in the case of Tianbing Aerospace, it was founded by the former CTO of Landspace, uh, Kang Yonglai. And the company appears to be building up uh, quite an industrial base and a network of contacts in the Yangtze River Delta region, so the YRD. And so pre this is including uh, previous funding rounds where a lead investor has been the Zhejiang University Innovation Fund, which is associated with Zhejiang University in Hangzhou. And more recently, the company announced plans for a smart rocket and engine industrial base in Suzhou, uh, or in uh, Zhangjiagang district of of Suzhou. Uh, And now this most recent round of funding includes, as one of the three main investors, uh, the Zhangjiagang Ecological Technology Fund. So again, we're getting some uh, support, it seems, from a city government in this case. 
And I guess more generally, we have a pretty interesting dynamic developing in the YRD as it relates to commercial launch. So we'll put a map up here just to kind of go over uh, some of what's going on. But basically, you have Lake Tai, which is a very large lake in roughly the center of the YRD. And on the southern shores of Lake Tai, you have the city of Huzhou, um, and basically Huzhou and, and, and Jiaxing. And these two cities have both seen land space build a factory. And Huzhou also is home to Rocket Group, which is a recently created launch startup. So we have this little cluster of launch companies on the southern shores of Lake Tai. Uh, and then up in the northern part, uh, we have um, Tianbing Aerospace, as mentioned, in Suzhou. And we have Deep Blue Aerospace with their rocket factory up in, in Nantong, so a bit further north, but still northern shores of, of Lake Tai-ish. Uh, and then over in the east, so Shanghai, we have the behemoth that is SAST and all of the launch capabilities that they have, primarily in Shanghai. And uh, as we can also argue in the very far west of the YRD, uh, whether or not Anhui is considered that is, is debatable, but we have in Bengbu, Anhui province, uh, a Jiuzhou Yunjian facility, and it's interesting because that facility appears to be upriver on the, the Huai River, which flows into the Yangtze, uh, into the rest of the YRD. So you have this kind of industrial base that appears to be kind of clustering together around this area. And as we've discussed in previous episodes, for example, Jiuzhou Yunjian uh, is planning on selling rocket engines to Rocket Group uh, as, as just one example. And so, um, yeah, it seems like there's a lot of, of just sort of clustering going on in the YRD and uh, Tianbing just being one of the latest companies to um, to really create um, their uh, their presence there. And I would also mention that, you know, in addition to this launch vehicle cluster in the YRD, we also have other clusters like satellite manufacturing and, and other verticals. But those are different stories for different episodes. So, um, yeah, anything from your side, John, on, uh, on commercial launch updates? Um, so I just want to add something here on the news on Tianbing Aerospace, also, also called um, Space Pioneer. Um, in the article, in the press release, something that was a little bit hidden was the fact that they said that the funding, this new round of funding, would enable the company to continue to fund the development of medium and heavy lift rockets. So no surprises there. But it also says that it will enable the funding of the development of a crewed spacecraft. And so that's a very interesting, you know. The thing is, crewed spaceflight in China is generally the prerogative of state-owned enterprises, namely um, CASC, right? And so there, it bears the question of what are they referring to? And potentially, maybe it could be a reference to this um, request uh, for proposal for a light cargo spacecraft that we saw a couple of months ago and that we had mentioned in a Dongfang Hour episode. So this was in January 2021, where the CMSEO, the China Manned Spaceflight Engineering Bureau, had basically, um, well, published an RFP for a very light uh, cargo spacecraft. So maybe this development that Space Pioneer is talking about refers to this. We don't know, but again, stay tuned to the Dongfang Hour to know more in the future. And I think that like going further now on launch updates, there were other launch updates this week. There was, for example, a grid fin verification test from iSpace. There were also two variable thrust static fire tests from Deep Blue Aerospace. But for the sake of keeping this episode short, um, we'll leave our listeners and our viewers to check out the newsletter to get more details on those two tests. And so apart from that, I think uh, I'm good for this week. Same here. All good. And uh, the internet held up reasonably well in this uh, in this frat house. So that's always nice. Um, next week, I will be joining you all from quarantine. So looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, nothing else from my side in terms of news updates this week. So this has been another episode of the Dongfang Hour Space News Roundup. 
This for the week of the 26th of July to the 1st of August. I realized at the beginning of the episode, I did not send a special shout out to our good friends over at GoTikonauts and Spacewatch.Global. Better late than never. Big shout out to those two. Great people. Great organizations. Uh, that being said, it sounds like construction is going on here. So that is my cue to go. Uh, thank you very much for listening and uh, see you next week. Thanks for watching and see you in next week's episode.